Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that for over five years, I taught thousands of people at hundreds of different events, both in person and online, how to grow their businesses. And I did this for Google. And now I want to do it for you. I'm offering up some special complimentary coaching opportunities for a few lucky wise squirrels. Visit wisequirrels.com slash coaching. Welcome to Wise Squirrels, the podcast for late diagnosed adults with ADHD. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Rosalind, who runs Compassion Family Health in Oregon. Tom has worked around ADHD since 1983 as a special education department teacher, a public health nurse, a school registered nurse, and with individualized education program and school attendance review boards. He's a parent of an ADHD child with a passion for foster care, assessments, and treatment of ADHD children and adults in family practice, pediatrics, and child and adult psychiatry. As always, a quick reminder, the content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I'm not a medical professional, nor do I play one on the internet or in real life, so go talk to your doctor. And speaking of talking to your doctor, that's what I'm about to do today, because if you haven't noticed, my voice is a little shot, um, but don't panic. I pre-recorded my interview with Tom, so it should sound fine. I should also add that all three of my family have had strep throat and a norovirus. We're talking exorcist vomiting. It ain't pretty what's coming. So if you don't hear from me again, well, you'll know why. So yeah, I've been I've been really looking forward to first of all having you on the podcast. I know unlike a lot of people that I've I've spoken with, you've been working in ADHD in this sort of this space uh since before it was cool. <laughs> before um, it was cool. Yes. So back in 1983, is that right? Actually, I started to interface with people with attention deficit um, during my time at USC in a uh, master's program in special education. Mm, interesting. So in what way? Like, how were you? In, in the 70s, um, in special education, we're dealing with, with kids with learning disabilities, etc. And at that time, attention deficit was being seen as a behavior disorder um oppositional defiant etc and these kids were constantly in trouble or being put into opportunity classes or into uh special education resource situations and the question was how can we help them learn and how can we help them fit into an education environment so it it was one of the groups of kids that i was learning to work with um, after that, I actually had quite a few kids that I interfaced with when I was working as a coach that had difficulty paying attention or focusing or being involved with the group. And so I became more and more fascinated with, with how the brain worked so that people could attend or not be so distracted. That was sort of the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, at, after that, uh, when I moved, when I moved into nursing, um in the 83 um 
in my county, we actually had quite a few kids with attention deficit, and uh, the residency program in our area was having an ADHD clinic. And when I graduated from Cal State um, Fresno um, and started working in public health, we started to interface with quite a few of those kids who were trying to to survive the school system and their parents, by the way, because their parents um, also demonstrated detention issues. And the question was, how how do you work with a family now that is um, full of distractibility and attention, impulsivity and hyperactivity? So it, it became a challenge. Um, to me did you find that parents were receptive to both the idea that their their child has uh adhd or or that they too have adhd which is something I'm, i've learned a lot in in my own sort of early days of this but my own you know conversations and reading and things how many parents or or late diagnosed adults tend like me tend to find out well not in this case but like like me in the age, tend to realize they have ADHD because their kids are diagnosed and they see it in themselves. But um, there's, so, yeah, there's a, there's a distinct bias in our culture against thinking about the brain as actually being a a biologic mechanism. Um, most people are seeing things as either character faults or those kind of things. So. It, it usually was when the parents were getting into a desperate situation that they wanted to um, think about that for their child. Um, a, a lot of time, in fact, a, f- a fair number of families, I was on what's called the uh, School Attendance Review Board or SARB, and they showed up at our meeting because they were being told, get your kid to school, get your kids to behave at school or we're going to have consequences for you as a family. So at that point, they were getting a little more receptive to the idea that there could be a medical intervention. Uh, Unfortunately, I've seen an awful lot of kids who were noticed in second, third, fourth grade, and the parents wanted to do things uh, behaviorally, uh, counseling-wise, and the child was being... mm, uh, educationally damaged and and uh, person personality damaged during this whole period of time as they're being put into corners in the back of the classroom, uh, being sent to detention all the time, being sent to the office, um, all of those kind of things that were happening with children. A lot of school failure was resulting at that point. So it was usually out of desperation that they would think about medication. A lot of times I would spend uh, some period of time saying, well, what would be the risk if we were to uh, do two weeks of something and see what happens? I mean, you have your child's life. We could change in the matter of a few days if it works. But uh, would you be willing, please, to, to at least take three to four or five days or a week? Because... When you treat with the dopamine agonists that we use, like Adderall or Concerta, methafenidate, dextroamphetamine, we see results in in days. And and the risk to the child is very minimal. Uh, And I was I started this when we used to think that risk there was risk to cardiovascular issues, heart issues, uh, 
addiction issues or issues of dependency, all of which have been uh, studied and discounted. Um, there are no cardiac issues in children. I used to do an EKG and a, and a chest X-ray on all the kids, and it turned out that was just extraneous. Um, it turns out, in fact, I just read a paper this morning uh, from the JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, there is no indication that kids go on to become uh, dependent or addicts because of using Adderall or, or, or Ritalin. In fact, there's lots of data that indicates if you appropriately treat a child, that their risk of going into substance abuse drops to very, very, very tiny. If you don't treat them, their risk of finding methamphetamine on the street goes up. And a lot of times, it's one of my standard questions, did you use meth? Because they they do. they found out if they used meth that they could pay attention and focus instead of getting wired. Although they were killing dopamine cells, street meth is very dangerous and damaging to the brain because of the mm. concentrations and doses. So the parents would eventually say yes. And there was a remarkable change that happened. I've seen kids who were on the risk of being expelled and I begged the system, the school system and the parents, please let me treat your child. And one child who was a freshman, I think, in high school, went on to be valedictorian. Um, mm. to, to succeed in the school system as a child with attention deficit, a teen with attention deficit, you have to be very bright. It's, it's to compensate for the distractibility and the inattention. and these very bright kids are being uh, told they're stupid, dumb, not uh, able to succeed at all, but they are keeping up. One of my phrases to the kids is, and the parents is, you know, you're keeping up with kids with C's and B's, and that means you're very smart. Hmm. If I take the weight belt off of the attention deficit, just think about how much better you can interact and compete with all the rest of the kids. Take that 60-pound weight belt off mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can run fast. Yeah. And that's what we're discovering with adults as well. What are the main differences that you're seeing in like a child with ADHD versus an adult with ADHD? The the difference between a child and an adult? Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> The differences. Well, the, the adult has spent a long period of time attempting to create coping mechanisms so they can survive uh, at work, in their families, in the environment. And so I see a tremendous number of people with some very interesting ways of coping. Hmm. Um, a, a majority of those coping skills work but sometimes are are a little dysfunctional. Um, one 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 adult I know, uh, very bright, knew he was very bright, but to get an A, he had to spend an inordinate amount of hours working. Um, versus after he was treated, it would be one tenth of that time. Um, so the the difference is that the child has not yet had a time to develop the strategies. The adults have developed many strategies. The other difference is that the adult has modified their personality 
um, to fit whatever environment they are able to move into. Many of the adults uh, with some really uh, tremendous innate ability take less than appropriate jobs or or move into um, jobs or careers that they would have been able to, well, they would have had more options in the future. Mm. So instead of, uh, so I have some adult patients who are very, very creative. That's one of the side pieces of the ADHD brain is a huge amount of creativity. Uh, and they've become tattoo artists. Uh, but when I treat them and we start talking, we are talking nuclear physics. We're talking about all these very yeah. sophisticated subjects, and they're extremely bright, intelligent, competent people. You know, uh, PhDs in physics and chemistry, etc. But they're working as tattoo artists. There's nothing wrong with the tattoo artist, but these people have tremendous potential. Uh, we are we are basically throwing away some of our most creative minds because we won't recognize that we can assist them um, in becoming everything they they have the potential to be. Um, it's very, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Fine. Go ahead. No, I was just going to add that it's just fascinating to me to reflect on my own life, my own childhood, and, 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 consider this for myself like a lot of the music uh that i grew up listening to a lot of those artists uh, you know and i've since being diagnosed in this realized uh, i started reading up on this and realized that like so many of the musicians that i love all have come out and said they have adhd and right. And, right. and then when i shared on facebook my diagnosis because i wanted i want to remove the stigma. That's the whole purpose of this. And, and to, and to share, you know, what I, what I'm going through with folks, I had a lot of people uh, comment privately to me who are, are old friends. Uh, I grew up listening to like a lot of skateboard punk rock stuff. And, and a lot of friends who hung out with me back then messaged me and said, you know, you, I am too. And you'd be surprised like how many people from back in the day were like that. And, and many have become, tattoo artists <laughs> not to downplay yeah not to poo -poo tattoo. there's but, nothing wrong with that it's just yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's a secondary choice for a lot of them um, right a lot of them made an attempt to be uh, successful students a lot of them wanted to move into an academic or uh, a profession like medicine or or whatever and they just could not they could not make the grades <laughs> right very right. frustrating and and some of these are brilliant i mean just think of how creative uh, hyperactivity is um well let me just change the direction mm -hmm. i don't see that this is a a disorder actually i see that it is a type of brain that has tremendous potential if we learn how to put it into our environment or let it be the kind of brain it can be for for creativity, um, for working with multitasking, for um, doing multiple things at the same time, uh, paying attention. I mean, in the old days, I'm pretty convinced that if you had out in the wilderness or in, in places where your life was at stake, you'd want an attention deficit brain. Yeah. 
watching, observing, seeing everything that's going on, responding to it, coming up with creative ideas to survive, uh, all of that. And this is what we're throwing away. Um, I, I was just thinking maybe maybe you can insert this, but the difference with adults is that women who are typically not hyperactive have um, really suffered for a long time as adults because these bright, bright students are trying so hard to, to succeed in school and in, in their groups at school. And all they can do is get a D or a C. And you can imagine what that does to their self-esteem, what it does to their options, what it does to their peer group pressure uh, responses. And we see these women move into careers of various various, various, <laughs> various types. Mm -hmm. And sh they just are not attaining their potential. What I see when we treat them is that all this potential rises to the surface and they are suddenly moving into positions of supervising people in their industry, uh, coming up with incredible new options, um, being very productive in their families, more productive in their careers. And it's like we've thrown away half of the, the population uh, it's it's it just amazes me to see the women start to to excel that thought that they were failures their whole life. Mm. It's just fascinating to see. Um, we don't we don't see women girls being diagnosed with attention deficit because they usually don't have as much hyperactivity or even impulsivity. They're highly uh, distractible people very distractible or they have a, tremendous problems with focus and attention and maintaining interest in something um, and they are very frustrated that they can't do it and they know they should be able to do it it just damages their self-esteem so we don't see women or girls that are attention deficit because we're always thinking hyperactivity we're always looking for the kid who's getting into trouble or who can't sit still and a lot of these gals sat in the classroom, quiet, getting D's, C's, and B's when they're really A-plus students and moving on into life. I've also seen them move from high school into college, and some of the high school work was easy because they were so bright, but when they got to college, they could not organize themselves for the kind of of uh, schedules and intense pressures that college requires. I mean, you have to set up your own um, your own schedule. You have to adhere to the schedule. You have to study. You have to turn papers in on time. And there's no teacher standing there telling you to do it. Mm -hmm. And so they literally start to fail and fall out of college or out of some technical training program. Same thing happens with guys too. And it's it's. It's 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 so simple to do a a diagnostic screen. The um, uh, WHO World Health Organization has the adult self report scale. Uh, I use the one point zero version, and it has ninety percent sensitivity to attention deficit and ninety percent specificity to attention deficit. It means it's only wrong ten percent of the time mm. because it's based on 
observational, long-term qualities and symptoms and characteristics. And if a person scores, um, if a person scores high on this scale because it's measuring functionality and productivity, is then we know that this person is is really struggling. You know, do you ever complete work? No. Are you able to start something but go and go back to it? No. Are you able to uh, pay attention in a, a conversation without interrupting constantly? No. Are you able to uh, do things that aren't interesting to you in spite of having to do it? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, think what that does to a person's functionality in, in society. And not only does it affect functionality, but it affects safety. I mean, do you want an attention deficit person on a large crane working overhead? That's mm-hmm. distractible or yeah. impulsive. You don't, but then the person gets those kind of jobs. In the in the world, um, we have, in the United States, not the world, we have about 9 million adults identified with attention deficit. I think that's a tremendous under uh, estimate of the number because we just are, are really bad at finding attention deficit, especially in women. And that that results in a cost that I have here, a paper of $14,000 per individual in the United States of lost productivity or injury or damage to property. And according to to this statement, one, $125 billion a year is lost because of inappropriate or not finding attention deficit disorder. Uh, half of that is is due to unemployment. A quarter of that is due to lost productivity. A tenth of that is due to the cost of healthcare issues related to ADHD. Now, that's a lot of money, yeah. and that's a lot of people. I think it's more like 20 million myself. Mm-hmm. And I really think the estimate has been underestimated because of the really horrible job we do at diagnosis. So everybody's basing the numbers on the actual number of treatment. Well, we're not finding these kids. We're not finding these adults. Um, I would typically, uh, when I was working in the junior high and high school setting, I would find kids that were obviously attention deficit in second, third, and fourth grade. And they have gone through all the schools and now they're a high school student. And it's obvious that they're failing because of attention deficit. We do a scale. I said, how come nobody noticed it? Well, they noticed it, but they never made the appropriate referral. Well, why didn't they? Why didn't the teachers do it? Well, uh, my experience is about half of the teachers in the education system don't believe that attention deficit exists. Uh-huh. And and so you would talk to them. Well, no, no, this kid's just a behavior problem. We'll call him oppositional defiant. Yeah, but he doesn't have the characteristics of oppositional defiancy. That's really equal to um, antisocial personality disorder. But this kid's very empathetic. He's very compassionate. He wants to succeed. He just can't. Then we label him as a behavior problem. Guess what happens? A a large number of these kids move into the juvenile justice system Mm -hmm. because they're impulsive. They've gotten involved with a group. They've done something impulsive. They get a... um, 
into the courts. They don't really know what's going on. The next thing they know, they're in juvenile hall. If you've ever been to juvenile hall, you know that if you don't do what the guard tells you, that you will receive additional time in juvenile hall. And these kids are constantly being, um, time is constantly being added to their time in juvenile hall. I have seen kids go in at 15 and 16 and come out of the adult justice system at 45. Mm. It's it's a real it's a real crime. If if you look at the adult system of justice in the United States and you ask the question how many of them have clinically defined psychiatric disorders including attention deficit, it's about 85%. Folsom apparently did a, a, a very good job of identifying psychiatric disorders during a period of time and treated them appropriately, and their recidivism rate dropped from 85% to 15%. Wow. Wow. It, you know, these are statistics that we have that are clearly known throughout the world, and yet we have a bias against people becoming successful by identifying their attention deficits and treating them appropriately so they can do what they're capable of doing. I, I'm frustrated. I don't understand why society wants people with attention deficit. It almost looks like a conspiracy. We don't want to compete with these people. It, it's almost, a, in my mind, a subconscious thing. We just want to label them as uh, lazy, not, not very bright, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't, maybe you can tell me, Dave, why, why society does that. It's hard to say. I mean, it's interesting, you know, right away, my, my, you know, and some of what you have mentioned here, well, first of all, <clears throat> knowing my wife, especially, you know, I think uh, as a couple of guys uh, uh, chatting here, I, I could probably safely say that that women tend to be smarter than us. Let's just say it. Uh, <laughs> it's a different kind of brain. There's yeah. no, but I, I mentioned that. And here's what why I started thinking of this. So you were talking about how girls, you know, ADHD has always been known or traditionally been known as this, you know, naughty boy thing, right? Where the hyperactive boy. And, yep. and as you're mentioning, girls don't really show that hyperactivity the same way. And then I think about, you know, all the reading and things that I've learned and just self-reflection about being an adult. And when I have conversations with other adults about this, they say, you know, I used to think I had ADHD, but I'm not hyperactive. And I'd say, aha, but this is what I've been reading up on is that as an adult, I like chew my lips, I stim, like I chew the inside of my mouth all the time. Um, I feel the the fabric of my shirt uh, under the table uh, all the time. I do these other things that I've realized in my own research and learning about this, that these are all right. symptoms of hyperactivity. It's only that I, as a as an adult, without realizing it, have learned to cope and, and to, you know, use the, use this hyperactivity in different ways and, and maybe matured with it some. So it's only so a lot, a, a lot of it's in my head, but I was going to say the, the little girls in the classroom who are not showing signs of hyperactivity are probably smarter than the boys because they're processing the hyperactivity at this advanced level in their minds more than the boys who are just losing their minds. Well, does, that make, does that make sense at all? 
Um, tremendous sense because the diagnostic dilemmas have to do with the comorbidities that present. Um, the Johns Hopkins and uh, George Washington University recently were talking about what are the comorbidities that you see most of the time with attention deficit. The comorbidities are depression and anxiety and panic. And what an awful lot of people do with their inattention um, or with their their distractibility is that it turns into an anxiety disorder. Mm. Have many they've actually recommended that all adults presenting with with anxiety or depression, the the the, the second question you ask is um are they attention deficit we should be screening for everybody who has presents to an office or has a anxiety for attention deficit we should be screening everybody for that presents for depression for attention deficit hmm. because 50 percent of those people will will meet the criteria for attention deficit disorder um the first thing you ask for is do they have a mood disorder you want to know do they have a bipolar one bipolar two recurrent unipolar depression or some sort of uh, beginning psychosis because that has to be ruled out what typically has happened now is that people present for anxiety or depression and the first thing they are given is an ssri like uh like sertraline which is good and we used to use sertraline actually for treating attention deficits so some people get better but it's not treating the underlying uh, cause of attention issues and then the next thing will happen is they'll get another ssri which is chemically almost the same thing with slightly different characteristics and they'll go through three or four ssris they might move into something like effexor xr or vindofexine and snri and the person gets a little bit better, but they're not treating the underlying reason for the anxiety or the depression, which is inattention, distractibility, impulsivity, or hyperactivity, or some combination. These, th these four char characteristics of attention deficit happen independently in some people or happen in various combinations. So you can have a person that is not hyperactive, not impulsive, not distractible, but has the very great difficulty in focusing and paying attention to something. You can have somebody who can do all the other three, but they are so distractible that when they walk into any environment that's noise or whatever, they just cannot pay attention or they're spending so much time processing all of the uh, environment that it's driving them to panic or to driving them to anxiety. I had one gal come in who was being treated with a benzodiazepine, clonazepam, for tremendous panic disorder and social anxiety. And she had not been very successful in that. It turned out, as we asked the question and did a little more history, that anytime she moved into an environment with people, it just was so intense so much data her brain wanted to process it all so much that she would become panic she would become uh, have social anxiety when we treated her attention deficit it all went away mm. we have to ask the question what's happening to the brain 
what's happening inside the brain are is the brain able to filter out extraneous data is it able to collate that data is it able to process it is it able to ignore data is it able to initiate interest and focus many times i call this an interest deficit disorder you notice that people with ADHD love to do video games or they love to watch TV. The reason is their interest is being rekindled every 15 seconds or five seconds and they can just, it sustains their interest or they have an interest in something. And once they have an interest, they are going to do that. They are going to focus on that and they are able to, to do it because of high interest. A lot of what we're doing in treatment with ADHD is working on the receptors in the brain that help you generate interest. That's why we call them dopamine agonists, dopamine helpers. Others will say that these are stimulants. Well, they're stimulants when you use concentrations that are above what actually helps the dopamine receptors move into a normal range so the person could actually focus and filter, pay attention, and manage their hyperactivity. Uh, it just occurs to me to mention that hyperactivity is a receptor in the brain that controls restless leg syndrome. In other words, when that dopamine receptor is out of whack, you have to move. It's not a matter of uh, wanting to move or needing to move. It's like an itch. It, it pushes you to movement. So hyperactivity is actually a... Can you imagine having restless leg syndrome all day long? That's body legs and, you know, body, restless body syndrome. That's really, that's really what's happening. These people can't sit still. It, it will drive them nuts to sit still. Mm -hmm. These people have impulsive thoughts. The thought comes into their brain and it, and they impulsively act on it. I had one kid in the junior high. I said, what are you doing on the roof? I don't know. It just came into my mind. Of course, now he's in trouble. You know, he's a, a troubled kid. Mm -hmm. uh, so we talked about inattention. We talked about distractibility. These things are overwhelming. Uh, a lot of attention deficit people, adults, cannot be around lot, loud sounds. Lots of sound drives them nuts. Mm -hmm. They're very sensitive to sound. It's one of the one of the criteria that we should use. How sensitive are you to the environmental sound? I have one little gal that we had identified as attention deficit. She's working in a job uh, at Goodwill. And the noise of the customers, the noise of the office is making it very difficult for her to function. Uh, mm. We treat her attention deficit. It got better, but we've actually had to get noise canceling, noise canceling earphones so that she is able to not be completely distracted all the time at work. This does that does that all make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I'm 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 curious from a maybe from a societal point of view where these changes need to come in order to help I guess professional like help medical professionals and so forth be screening for this more often, more frequently, but then also for for people like me to, to, to realize, cause I'm learning a lot about, obviously a lot about ADHD now that I know that I have ADHD, but, um, you know, so what needs to happen in the medical yeah. community, 
you know, the medical community is full of bias. People believe this or believe that. Um, you, you've got uh, primary care providers who don't believe in ADHD, and so they don't look for it. Um, you, you have providers who don't believe in depression. They, th they see it as a character flaw or some grief reaction. They don't believe that it's actually a a function of 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 uh, brain neurophysiology. They just but is, this not, but is this not part of the education of becoming a, a physician or a doctor? Is this not? I mean, that you know, you have to update your certification or whatever yeah. each year with the latest. Like so what, I, what I noticed in residency programs, and it may have changed. You know, we have many, many more women going into medicine, and so there's a different sensitivity. Um. But what I noticed that during their residency, during their rotation, many of them would actually, they could actually drop one rotation and the rotation they loved to drop was psychiatry. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And, or when they got into the psychiatric rotation, they really didn't have a psychiatric facility or good psychiatrist to work with. So it was not, it was a, it was a marginal thing. Or they were mostly focused on the the um, very sick, you know, somebody with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder with psychotic features or things like that, or those depressions that were suicidal, those kind of things. And so the 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 other components of psychiatry were put on the back burner. Um, so, and then we have a huge. Um, difference between medicine and behavioral sciences the behavioral sciences don't have the option of using medications so the sciences have grown that science has grown up around behavioral um, issues like counseling cognitive behavioral therapy directive therapy mindfulness uh, those kind of things and so when they get somebody like somebody with attention deficit they want to use behavioral modification or cognitive skills to modify something that is actually a physiologic issue in the brain. And so people are not are are are, are holding on to patients for a long time or seeing the side effects of ADHD like depression or anxiety and they're just not asking the question is this an attention issue is this a distractibility issue. That's why Johns Hopkins is trying to say to the medical community, screen for ADHD second, mm. not last. Yeah. Screen for mood disorders first, not last. Mm. These are, it's like a heart attack walking into your emergency room, right? Heart attack comes in the emergency room. What is the first thing you do? Well, it, it may be a heart attack, or it may be gastritis, or it may be asthma, it may be costochondritis, it may be muscular. But the first thing you do is you rule out the most serious thing that can be happening. So you rule out a heart attack. Well, when a person walks into our offices, the last thing we think about is attention deficit. The last thing that we think about is a mood disorder. But these are just like heart attacks in the person's life. Most people are being trained to think of simple depression. Most people are being taught to think about simple anxiety, 
They don't go any further. They've got a five-minute visit. They've got to chart for 20 minutes on the visit. This is simple, straightforward. The person's not suicidal. I will just treat with an SSRI. And then the person gets into the system. They come back in three or four weeks, and it's, oh, it's a little better. And they, they go on for years that way without somebody doing an intense assessment. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, primary care is not thinking about the brain very much. I, I'm sorry to say, and that's what I see happening all the time. People are not doing a good assessment. They're not doing a complete assessment. What has happened because of that, we now have requirements to do the brief scale, the PST, and some of the others for anxiety. Those have been mandated. You have to do them. You won't get paid if you don't do them. Hmm. In one sense, what we should do is we should mandate that an ADHD scale like the ASRS must be part of the initial workup and has to be documented in the chart. You have to document that you've ruled out attention issues. You have to document that you've ruled out anxiety. You have to document you've ruled out depression. You have to document that you've ruled out uh, adverse effect, you know, the ACE, the adverse childhood episodes. And you have to document that you've ruled out a mood disorder. You have to do that. That is a, a complete assessment that would be a screen. It's interesting because on the flip side, from a consumer's or, you know, patient's point of view, like I think, and and this is, uh, you know, all observational, of course, I don't have any data to back it up or anything, but I mean, I think of, uh, well, first of all, as I'm Canadian, right? So it's, it, it, uh, most of my life, uh, maybe still is, it, it was, it was against the, it was illegal to advertise uh, drugs on television versus, you know, anything prescription wise. So, you know, Tylenol, sure, but you, you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't advertise, you know, all these different drugs. And that was partly, you know, because uh, to kind of stop problems from happening with, with abuse and, you know, kind of what's happened with opioids in this country. But like, you look at the U S and daytime television and there's like it's constantly ads for things that have like half the ad is like side effects you know rolling up the screen um but i i bring this up because i also think that it else it also i've always thought about it in a negative way where like the consumer or the patient is watching television they see an ad for viagra and so they go to their doctor and they ask about it um and then whatever the doctor might prescribe it who knows um and again for somebody who doesn't watch daytime television i almost feel like if there was a lot of ads for stimulants on uh on daytime television more people would be asking their doctors hey i think i might have adhd does this make sense at all it's a weird kind of roundabout way of of raising awareness for consumers so what how does the how does the medical person respond to that oh this guy's drug seeking Right. But don't they? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. But it worked in the opioid case well, course, that, to that, a negative, a grand negative, of course. That, that is a whole nother issue because the so-called opioid epidemic was not due to providers or patients with legitimate pain. Okay. And what happened is we harmed thousands and thousands of people because we didn't have an alternative and we started ripping them off of their opioids, even though they had dependencies without doing it correctly. 
not realizing the, uh, that opioids themselves are mood stabilizers. And we were uncovering a tremendous number of people with mood disorders, and we just left them naked in terms of their mental health. Mm. And where, where do you go then? Well, you know, a lot of them went to heroin. And we mm. warned we warned the system that they were going to do that, and they have done that. There's been a tremendous increase in heroin use. And people's pain is so intense. I mean, I do disability exams, and people's pain is so intense, they cannot work. They mm. cannot do household stuff. Oh, well, that's just a drug seeker. They're, they they could do it if they want to. Have you have you ever had a uh, bullet crash into your spine? I, I had a patient who was a sniper in Vietnam, and he was hit in the spine, and he's had extreme mm. pain from this this bullet that's still there in his spine his whole life. And a little tiny bit of Norco was able to make him functional. Mm. Boss walks up to me and says, "You have to take him off of Norco. We have a no opioid policy." in our i mean it's it was insane and it was political it was not based on science um the the the, the cdc put out a very good art um protocol on pain it was totally misunderstood and misrepresented by most of the clinical staff it didn't say that you weren't to treat pain with opioids it said that if a person comes in with opioids and they have developed dependency that they need to be connected to a substance use disorder counselor and that you need to work in concert with that person, with the counselor to modify their pain through counseling and medication and to find an appropriate level that works, that is being monitored carefully. Mm-hmm. But instead we used it, um, I had a, a, a trained substance use counselor who went in because she had tremendous pain and was trying to had learned how to manage her pain mostly through mindfulness etc but she'd have exacerbations and she'd walk into the emergency room and say my pain is now a 10 over 10 it's intense i could hardly function and in the note the person wrote substance abuser here seeking opioids mm-hmm. she actually had to go to the administration and have them remove that because she's a substance use counselor and her license was at risk because somebody's first assumption was that she's a substance abuser and this also goes to attention deficit right now i spend an awful lot of time with pharmacists trying to convince them that this uh, uh this medication this prescription for, for concerta or you know adderall or or vivance is a legitimate diagnosis. I've had pharmacists insist that I have to send them my patient's notes to prove, number one, that they're a patient, and number two, that they actually have attention deficit, which they don't believe in anyway. Mm. My patients, some of which are doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, or whatever, walk in and are treated with disdain by the pharmacy staff because they have, quote, a controlled substance. Uh, I was in a DEA conference and uh, people like me are being blamed for the, the stimulant um, uh, epidemic. In other words, nurse practitioners who were designed to be out in rural areas, working with rural patients with real needs, you know, injuries, et cetera, but also with, it's almost that the environment selects for attention deficit people because where do they go when they can't get jobs in, in the professional world? They end up in the rural community. And 
we're being blamed in peace by the DEA at this conference. We are being blamed for the increase in the number of prescriptions for Adderall and um, and Concerta, that we are being told that we are inappropriately using these medications and we really don't know what we're doing. But what they haven't asked is, are we actually doing a better job of diagnosis? They are not asking the question, how many of us are in the rural environment finding all of these kids and adults who have been suffering and are out there in that environment because of untreated, undiagnosed attention deficit disorder? The mm -hmm. assumption is it's a controlled substance. It's bad news. It should be never used for anything. Uh, and and it's, it, again, a, a, a stimulant epidemic. It's not what's happening. I mean, we've got some charlatan groups out there that are using it as an opportunity to make money. Um, in, in Oregon, I have to prove that they're a patient of mine and that I'm not con connected to one of these organizations that is they're seeing as ADHD mills. Hmm. You know, it, if, if I'm sorry, I'm getting frustrated. No, uh, no, it's great. It's, it, and I appreciate your frankness and, and, and what you're sharing here. And, uh, yeah, my, I mean, and my question was poorly worded because I uh, I shouldn't have said opioid specifically, but what I was, I guess what I was getting at was, you know, how can consumers or patients become more aware of this in order to communicate their their concerns with their physician, their GP, or whomever, so that. You know, obviously, we're not going to solve all the world's problems on this podcast, but I, I'm trying to think of like ways to. I mean, you've talked very eloquently about helping, you know, helping the medical professionals and, and helping that industry improve, you know, and be looking for this first and foremost. Uh, any, what? any, maybe that's just it. Maybe that's all we should be doing. I don't know. I wish we would not do medicine by politics. Right. I, you know, you have World Health Organization talking about attention deficit as an international crisis, the number of people injured, the number of people who uh, end up not being productive in countries where we need them to be productive, the number of uh, the the lost, um, the, the amount of crime that's probably related to hyperactivity or impulsivity. Um, they see it as an international crisis. Their estimate is 10 to 20 percent, more more like 15 percent of a, of a humans have some attention issue that is causing profound damage within their lives or within society. Injury, uh, damage to property, extreme damage to property, uh, the cost of of welfare, the cost of health care, all of which is related to lack of attention and inadequate treatment. 15% of the world's population, 15% of 8 billion people have attention deficit issues. 15%. Let's put numbers on that. What is 15% of 8 billion? I don't do math. Don't do math. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 15 people out of every <laughs> yeah, right, right. Okay. If <laughs> yeah, you yeah. have a classroom, if you have a classroom, you're a teacher and you have 30 kids in the classroom, how many of those kids are mm. struggling with an attention deficit? All right. Two to five of them. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. Four to five kids in your classroom. Four to five kids in your classroom, you should expect to find at least four to five kids in a classroom. When I was functioning as a school nurse, and I knew that 10 to 15% of kids have asthma, and I knew that we only knew of five kids in this in this in my population of 4,000. I had a suspicion that maybe we were underdiagnosing. And so I went out and found them. If we know that 15% of the kids in a in a junior high school are attention deficit, then we should be looking for 15% of them in the schools. But is it the is it that is it the fact that teachers are already underpaid and overworked and oh listen, David, David. I'm a special educator, right? Uh huh. And I'm married to a teacher, so okay. Listen, and yeah. and my dad was a teacher. Yeah. What you do if you want to be an effective teacher and you don't want to spend your time doing fire, you know, putting out fires, is you do preemptive assessments. You've got thirty kids in a class, okay? Thirty kids is an elementary school teacher. They are with you day and day in and out for eighteen times two, thirty six mm-hmm. weeks, okay? Take two weeks and assess every kid. Mm-hmm. That's what we do in special ed. You know what their their skills are. You know what they're learning. I mean, I, I, I could take a child and in about 35 minutes do an assessment, a, a assessment on learning disability, uh, attention deficit, anxiety, et cetera. It takes me 30 minutes. What does or, the teacher do with that information, though? Like when they do identify s- several kids in a class that that are likely... You you create a teaching plan for the kid. Mm. That's what we do with IEPs, individual education plans. Every child, we know their strengths. We know their weaknesses. We know what to think about. And we create appropriate activities Mm. for them in the class with appropriate structure of the class to make them successful. 30 kids, 36 weeks. Come on. It's such an, I mean, it is simple, uh, you know, the, way, spend, the way you explain instead, it. And it's, but it's, instead, they spend their time putting out fires. I don't have time to do it because I've got this problem, that problem, this problem, and that problem. You do preemptive work and you don't have this problem, that problem. I saw teachers in, a, in the junior high school and elementary and high school who did good assessments of their whole classroom. I mean, in high school, you've got what, six six classes or five classes a day of 30? Mm. How long does it take to do a quick assessment of those kids? I mean, you got CUM files. Yeah. You, it, it doesn't take long to pull 30 CUMs and look at the ones that have some identified issues. It doesn't take that long. But instead, they spend, you know, instead of spending the three hours to do that, they spend close to 30. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air per student trying to put out fires. What a stupid, what, I'm sorry, shouldn't use the word stupid. What an ear, well, it doesn't make sense to me to do yeah. that. And, and I've, watched, I've watched teachers do this and their, cla- and their students excel, their class excels, um, and, it, and it can happen. I had one teacher who actually did this with all of their students. These students were, uh, English was a second language. They had Hmong, Min, Hispanic, Punjab, et cetera, in the same room. And these, you walk into this room, and this room is buzzing. It's it's humming with learning, humming with learning. Hmm. Then you walk into an English only class, and the class is 
you know, one kid's over in the corner doing this and sitting at their desk doing that. It, it's, it's just doesn't work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? I don't have time. I don't have time. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, I'm burned out on teacher being a teacher. I understand that you come into teaching with a high uh, amount of desire to, to help students then do it. Be a teacher. I'm sorry. I, I love teachers. Yeah. I loved working with teachers, but I found out that the culture of teaching develops almost an anti-student mentality. You go to teachers' rooms. Have you ever been in a teaching uh, um, with teachers on breaks in their room? Mm-hmm. Oh, they talk about this kid and that kid and this kid and that teacher and this teacher instead of being positive and figuring out ways. This is probably never get on there, and it's it's just a very negative environment. I'll tell you. So in Tennessee, we're we're going back to school, and at my wife's school yesterday, um, her her and her colleagues, all the teachers, uh, got into their cars together, and they brought uh, uh, popsicles, ribbons, signs, and they did a parade through multiple neighborhoods who are mainly low income neighborhoods in in the area around their school. Um, and they basically had a back to school parade. They got out of the car. They they were hugging the kids, handing out. And this is on their own time, which I thought was amazing. So I want to make sure we're not throwing teachers under the bus here. No, no. I love teachers. My dad was a teacher. I'm yeah. Yeah. I'm a tenured teacher. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I left a tenured position to move into healthcare. Mm-hmm. I love education. I've sat on thousands of IEPs. Mm. The problem is even the IEP has become a burden. When I was in special ed, in my master's, IEPs didn't exist. Individual education plans, a federal instrument designed to go with the student to any state in the United States, I don't know if it goes to Canada, to any position that they work as a job. It goes into juvenile justice. It goes to work with them. It goes to college with them. Mm -hmm. And, And we were excited. You can have a doctor, a nurse. A, a an educator, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a counselor, all sitting in the same room together, focused on this kid for an hour and come up with a plan to make the, them successful for the rest of their life. What has it become? Oh, no, I've got to go to another IEP. Oh, well, gee, maybe we can get rid of this IEP and call it a 504 because um, we can do it quicker with fewer responsibilities. Well, we don't. In an IEP, you're supposed to be doing a full developmental screen. It can only be done by two categories of people, a nurse or a physician. I would see many, many of the developmental uh, histories and the, and the medical histories done by the school secretary. You're completely wrong. I, up in Southern uh, uh, Oregon right now, they, they won't hire a school psycholo- a psychologist to do the assessment. So basically, you've got somebody, I don't know who, an administrator, coming up with an assessment. They don't have anybody doing a developmental screen. They completely seem to ignore the fact, because of money, that they don't have time. And then they wonder why they don't have time to deal with students in a proactive way. They just don't do the upfront. And I I think one of the, you're going to get thousands of letters. I love it. <laughs> I love teachers, but the teaching 
community schools have no accountability and there needs to be accountability. They need to be held accountable for assessing every student that comes in the school, developing a success plan for every student that comes in the school. And you're going to talk about money and we don't have time. But let me tell you, if you do it up front, you don't have to waste all the time that you're spending putting out fires. I have seen it work. I know it works. Mm-hmm. It just takes a certain degree of commitment to do the upfront work. I'm know curious. Your I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Know your students. Get to know your students. Do an assessment, etc. I'm curious. Getting back to, you know, uh, for adults who are listening who are late diagnosed, I'm 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 curious. You know, of the of the adults that you see, what, what like what would the percentage be of entrepreneurs or solopreneurs? Because I, I find in the Large research number. I've done, yeah, I, I've Large been noticing. Number. Yeah, I've been noticing that as well. They don't, they don't fit, right? They're called um, in 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 Silicon Valley. We call them misfits, and actually, the culture had to change to work with misfits, but. The, the number of entrepreneurs like uh, Etsy and eBay, et cetera, is huge because they don't fit in the work-a-day environment. Hyperactivity. I want you to sit down in front of a desk for eight hours. Is that going to work? I want you to go into a busy office where there's 15 people, and I want you to pay attention and answer the phone and do all this stuff. Is that going to work? It, it doesn't. I, I want you to manage. I want you to manage uh, and supervise staff, <laughs> and <laughs> you can't even organize your own life um, because of your attention issues. It's 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 a huge number of people in entrepreneur. It's also a huge number of people who don't progress. Uh, we didn't talk about dyslexia and dysgraphia, but they are hand in hand with attention deficit. So I've seen people who should have been supervisor managers and they can't they can't move on because they can't do the paperwork. They can't read. Mm. They've been moved on through school without being able to read. There's a there's a large number of them that are dyslexic and the school system has decided that dyslexia doesn't exist. My son is dyslexic. He was given in special ed, he was given sight words to memorize. Mm. Now, he can't decipher words. He can't pull words apart. He has huge vocabulary, speaking vocabulary, and they put him and they tell him to memorize a whole bunch of words. Well, he has attention deficit. He can't pay attention to something that's not interesting. And he sees the words either backwards, upside down, or he can't see the middle of the word. We had on our own, we had to spend, what, three years to get him a dyslexic specialist and teach him how to do word attack skills and sentence attack skills. And and that that was with so-called special education services. It's 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 really interesting how the society works. Um, and for those people that those entrepreneurs who are you know we we look at Steve Jobs and his his you know think different different uh, you know here's some of the crazy ones the misfits that that speech that he did. Um, 
are are there strategies that you recommend for people like myself who, you know, for the most part, I work for myself by myself and, and, um, and I run my own business. So what are your, yeah, strategies. Yeah. Things. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's Chad, C-H-A-D-D. There's Mm. A-D-D, you know, attitude. There are a fair number of books on strategies for ADHD. But personally, I think the first thing to do is to get appropriate diagnosis and and use the medical treatment so that the brain is at least functioning the way it's supposed to function in this society so that you can have the skills um, that you need to to work within this this culture. Personally, I I have difficulty calling ADHD a disorder. I see it as a certain type of brain with tremendous power and skills that has to be utilized in the appropriate environment. And what I'm doing half the time is pushing the brain into a slightly different brain type so that they can function within our society. You know, you've got to be able to pay attention. You've got to be able to not be distractible. You have to not be moving. You have to not be impulsive. And so we're we're bringing that brain into a more organized age that's more organized around a certain cultural type and a certain a type of thought process. Are there are there societies or cultures or countries or places that you think are doing a better job this way? I almost picture like um, I believe it's maybe in the Netherlands or somewhere that created like a basically like a small town for for people with dementia and Alzheimer's to function, uh, but in a safe way. And uh, you know, as a as someone who whose father passed away from that, uh, you know, that hits home. And and when I saw saw that, like I saw some videos about it, I thought, wow, what a great great idea. I wonder. Are, well, yeah. First of, are there countries or cities that that do a better job? And and uh, could you envision like a society or a city or an area created specifically for people with ADHD? I want to write a book. Uh, I'm a science fiction nut, and I want to write a book where the ADHD brain is the normal brain, uh, and and determine how society would look if ADHD were the typical brain type. Um, ah, I love that uh, idea. The court, uh, it would be fascinating because you think it would be a disaster, but the societal norm would not be sitting in a room listening to a lecture by being quiet, and the societal norm would not be sitting still at a desk. It would be putting something together or doing something active. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, 100%. It would be a totally different type of culture. I mean, the, I know I'm going a little bit off, but there was a school in San Francisco for ADHD where they they taught all of the academics uh, subjects by building a car from scratch mm-hmm. from and and actually doing the metal work and the, the design work etc learning about how engines work learning chemistry learning physics learning english learning to read learning to write all based on building that car you know mm-hmm. it's a whole different society are there countries that are doing a good job the, the World Health Organization has got tons and tons of people working on this. One paper they put out, the World Federation Consensus Statement, it, 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 right now they're spending time just trying to convince countries they have a problem. 
I saw a paper just recently where they go through 208 evidence-based criteria about ADHD and its effects. And they studied, they only took in studies that have over 2,000 participants, and they they did a meta-analysis on this. It was 80 authors from 27 countries and six continents, and their conclusions was it's underdiagnosed, it's inadequate screening, there's a bias against attention deficit in every country of the world. Hmm. And every country of the world has 10 to 15% of their population with attention issues. No, people are not doing a good job. Countries are not doing a good job. It's costing billions and billions of dollars. It's costing lives and injury. It's costing productivity. We're doing a crummy job with it. It's a worldwide problem. It needs to be attended to but there's a distinct bias. I had a boss once that said, uh, I don't want you treating attention deficit because it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I hear of that of others who go to their doctors and their doctor says, yeah, the same sort of thing. And so he pulled up a paper, one paper from France. Now in France, the culture doesn't want to believe in attention deficit um, for some reason, I don't know why, and and they estimated their attention deficit population at two to three percent. Well, two to three people out of a hundred is still a lot of people. Sorry, yeah. Uh, but he said, "Well, look, if there is attention deficit, it's only two or three percent of the people, and you're treating this number of people. That can't be. I want you to stop doing it." He, I, I brought to him a list of a thousand researchers around the world who are attention deficit spe- specialists, PhDs, MDs, et cetera. And he said, they just don't know what they're talking about. Mm. The world has a bias against mental illness that's psychiatric based. The world does not want to believe that the brain is more than one or three organs. It is literally, if you looked at it from an organizational standpoint, it is literally over 300 separate entities within this little skull of ours. And these entities aren't just doing their job. They're highly interactive and highly interrelated. If one system goes out of whack, all the rest have to compensate. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It is yeah. a high, it's like having a car where the carburetor doesn't where you nobody knows what that is. It's like having <laughs> a, a car where the radiator goes out of whack. Does that affect the rest of the system? It's like a car where the, the, the oil is no longer in that. Does that this is a highly integrated system? The brain is a is a biologic, neurologic, physiologic, electrical phenomenon that is malleable, it is it is able to change, and it can change in various directions. And if it doesn't interface with each other, if it doesn't have good mechanisms for um, control, it will go in the wrong direction, and you'll have problems with mood, you'll have problems with tension, you'll have problems with rage. You'll, all of this happens with learning, uh, et cetera. And we just cannot get the world to believe that the brain is complicated. Well, that's our that's our goal here on Why Squirrel. So, Tom, this has been amazing. Okay. Oh, um, but I, I, no, this has been fantastic. I I, I really have appreciated th- this conversation. So, thank you. I, I hope I, so. <laughs> how can yeah? How can people get a hold of you and learn more about what you do? 
Oh, I have a little concierge practice in Oregon. Um, and uh, I can, um, gee, what is the best way to do that? Um, gee, I don't want to get overwhelmed with with text on my number. <laughs> well, is there like uh, like a website or a email uh, or something like that? Yeah, it's called Compassion Family Practice LLC. Compassion Family Practice LLC. Um, and you can actually email me at that. It's it's all one word, Compassion Family Practice at gmail.com. Great. Compassion family Practice. And I will include links to to that and everything we talked about here. And then the I can notes. give you I can give you the website where they can actually request an appointment. But again, oh, yeah. I I am limited right now the way telehealth works to to Oregon. But I have been willing to do consultations for people hmm. to give them my opinion, and they can take that to their primary care provider. Mm -hmm. I think if if pa patients want to get their providers to pay attention, that that I have. Uh, I'll just tell you real quick. I use the SCARED, S-C-A-R-E-D, uh, assessment for anxiety. It's supposed to be for children or works well for uh, adults. I use what's called the Columbia Depression Scale, which is much more sensitive to, than the ones they're using, the Columbia Depression Scale. The Moon Disorder Questionnaire, the MDQ, is important. Then the ASRS, WHO, World Health Organization, ADHD scale, 1.0 is more sensitive in my mind because it differentiates between inattention and distractibility in one pole and impulsivity and hyperactivity on the other. Mm. Um, and so that's looking at depression, anxiety, attention deficit, and mood disorder. Uh, and then I always want to include the ACE because uh, unfortunately, trauma has a lot to do with how the brain functions, um, and and then that's that's the assessment they can use with their primary, and walk in with those assessments done. Right? Mm. Say, pay attention to this, please. Pay attention to this. If you don't believe in this, tell me what's happening, and or if you don't believe in it, refer me to somebody who does, please. Yeah. Don't, don't disregard me. Um, you walk into your doc and you say, well, I don't think you have ADHD and your score on this ADHD scale is 48, you know, 30 is significant. Well, what do you, what do you think is happening here, doc? Mm -hmm. Tell me what's happening. I want you to listen to me. It's a great, if you, if you find that there's a provider who's not listening to you, that's a mismatch. Yeah. Yeah. You should, your provider should listen to you. You're the consumer. You're the boss in the room. He's supposed to pay attention if they don't move on. And that is a great point to leave there. So, uh, <laughs> Thanks, no, David. It's, Tom, this has been awesome. Seriously, thank you I again so. for your time. All I yeah. want is people to get better. I want them to function and fly. I just love watching my patients suddenly fly fly to the highest extent of their ability. It's just fascinating to know we can do that simply. Thanks a lot, Dave. Hey, thanks for listening to Wise Squirrels. It has been amazing to share this with you. Best way to show your support for the show. Leave us a review, follow the show, and share it with the people in your life. We drop new episodes every two weeks, so stay tuned for that. Plus, drop by wisequirrels.com or click the link in the podcast description 
and you'll find a lot of different resources like articles, a, an assessment, a newsletter, lots of good stuff over at wisequirrels.com. So drop by, let me know what you think, and we'll see you next time. Take care.